Well, if you spend any time traveling through the Massey Tunnel, you know that it is one of the biggest choke points in all of Metro Vancouver. You were likely looking forward to a bridge replacing the tunnel. You would also know that project was scrapped. But we did get a big hint this past week from the Premier saying the possible future of the George Massey Tunnel could be a twinning of the existing tunnel. Well, let's bring in Lois Jackson. She was the mayor of Delta when the bridge announcement was made. Lois Jackson is now a city councillor with Delta. Uh, Thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jill. Nice to talk to you again. I know that this was one of your uh, big projects when you were the mayor. I remember you saying, actually, you could retire being mayor because this project, the bridge had been approved. You've, you had the bridge, and that was one of the big things that you wanted to get done on uh, while you were mayor. And yes. you were upset when it, was, when it was dead in the water, as it is now. What is your reaction to what we're hearing that uh, likely what's going to happen is a twinning of the tunnel? Well, you know, at first blush... Uh, you know, I'm really glad at least it's back on the table. It's on, on the provincial radar. Um, but, you know, the the desperate need, is, you know, of course is self-evident uh, with the, uh, you know, the supposed growth of over a million people that are coming here pretty soon. The, um, the new mayors, they have seen the problem, and uh, that's a good thing, as opposed to the old guard that would not see. Um, and... Here's where, you know, the knowledge and the, and the fairness comes in, uh, the common sense comes in. I have a big but here, you know. Yes, I'm glad, uh, you know, they're looking at it. But, and this is the common sense part, I believe it's the wrong project. Um, you know, from, from many aspects, the cost, the land, uh, the liens uh, requirement, the, the um, environmental, the agricultural, and all of those things were in the old um, study. And um, you have to remember, uh, there was about $100 million spent by the uh, previous government to get as far as they did uh, shovel-ready. And uh, now we have a situation that uh, we're looking at something else. I uh, do believe that um, the cost of a new cu- uh, tunnel is uh, probably going to be around 4 to $5 billion. Uh, the tunnel at the time was uh, going to end up being about $2.75 billion. Uh, you know, that, that's a lot of taxpayers' money. And... Uh, the question of, of, of the lanes. Everybody says, well, we don't need all these lanes. Well, I look at the Portman Bridge. They have 10 lanes. And with the growth south of the river, um, it, it, with the people even leaving their cars at home, um, we still have a tremendous amount of, of truck traffic and commercial traffic coming into our port here in Delta. Delta has the largest container terminal on the west coast of North America. This is where Canada gets its goods, is at Delta Port. And uh, we, we, we have to have the capacity for trucks on the road. And uh, it, it's just self-evident. You know, we need, we need two lanes for rapid transit, and rapid rail will be the eventual use, I believe. We need two for HOV, and we need six, uh, which we need right now, for trucks and cars. So that's 10 lanes, and it's the very same as the Portman. There's no difference. And how many lanes would a twinned tunnel be, or do we know? I don't know. They're, they're talking about six or eight, 
which I, I think is a mistake. We have to plan out jail for the next 50 years. And uh, as I said earlier, the number of people that are projected to come here, even, you know, without the, they're, they're calling them inter, uh, uh, environmental refugees coming from other areas that will be underwater, uh, we're looking at an, another million people. The land where these people are going to locate is south of the river. Vancouver basically has no more land. The land is in Surrey and Langley and out the valley. And they are going to have to have a connection on the west side to transport goods and people across the river. Um, I mean, you talk about the the, the environment. Um, I'm really, really surprised that all these people are are talking about going through the river. Um, It's going to trigger a Canadian uh, federal environmental assessment. There's no doubt about that. Uh, because you're tampering with the river. And you'll have to go much, much further back from the river in order to get the depth. Um, the The bridge didn't even set one foot in the river. It was all on land, and therefore it did not trigger an environmental assessment by the feds. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised that they're thinking about tampering with the river when we're in such jeopardy with, with some of the salmon runs now. Uh, so I don't think it could pass the environmental test anyway. Do you think it's a case of, and the Premier said, we didn't have federal support because this bridge would have been told uh, we can now do that. I mean, I can't remember the last time the feds built a bridge here. Uh, yeah. But do you, do you think it's a political decision in that the NDP couldn't be seen to be on board with a liberal project? Absolutely. You know, when you come down to politics and the big heavy politics, provincial and federal, you know, people aren't naive um you know the the party rules here common sense is out the window and what what should be happening for the betterment of the people and the community and our public purse is not necessarily agreed to because the other party wanted to have it and and Sarah, we can't have what the other party wanted to have and there's a lot of that goes on. I think it's a, a, a real dereliction of duty when politicians do that. Well, we won't agree, even though it's the best project, because it's the other party. We can't agree with the other party. So I, I have difficulty with that. Uh, and, and, and incidentally, I, I took a delegation, including um, Chief uh, of the Twilight First Nation, Bryce Williams, last year, and we went to Ottawa and asked if we could use the um, funding, uh, the grant funding, from the International Trade Fund. And they said, absolutely, all you need is a partner, Lois, all you need is a partner. So that money has been on the table since last spring. And uh, again, the, I, I get so, you know, I guess I've been in the game too long, Jill. I really have. You know, I get so tired of the politics. And, and instead of saying, let's do this, our people need it, it's going to cost this much. Uh, but, but there's all this falderalling and studying the studies. And um, it, it's very frustrating for the public. And no wonder, uh, you know, people don't come out at election time. Uh, how much money is in that fund that, that's been sitting there? Oh, gosh, I've forgotten now. Um, oh, we'd have to go back and check that. I, I hate to That's okay. say, but there's a lot. But they said, yeah, we could do this. And even even if uh, 
this goes ahead. And the premier said he feels that if the twinning project goes ahead, it can be fast tracked or can happen quickly. Uh, but you mm-hmm. mentioned you make a good point. If it's a six, even eight, but even the fact that a six lane project is on the table to me is a bit mind boggling in that that actually is less capacity because right now with counterflow, each ways for traffic, there's three lanes. You'd actually be losing a lane in, in rush hour. Absolutely. Absolutely. You see, there's the common sense. There's the common sense. Anybody would, would, would think that. You have thought of that like many other people. Well, why are we just duplicating what we have? And when we're supposed to be building out for 50 years, that's craziness. But, you know... How do you convince the people in power that they must use common sense and not party politics? How do you do that? Uh, It's a good question. Um, We're almost out of time. What do you do now as a councillor, as a former mayor, somebody who fought so hard for that bridge, uh, with Uh this being told this could happen, it could happen soon? What what is the role of Delta Council in this? Well, I think we just have to sit tight uh, and, and see what the politicians have to say in Victoria. Um, it, you know, they're, they're the, the trigger. And uh, in the past, the, 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 unfortunately, the, the old mayors, uh, you know, would not see again past the end of their political nose. And um, I, I think from Delta's perspective, we are not in the driver's seat. We are only here to, uh, you know, await the conclusion of the federal and, and, and pr- particularly in this case, the provincial government. Well, we will uh, wait as well as will the people uh, stuck in the gridlock. Uh, Councillor Jackson, thank you so much for your time. Always appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Jill. All the best to you and thanks for the opportunity. All right. See you at May Days tomorrow. Oh, you bet. <laughs> yes, thanks. I'll see you there. All right. That is Lois Jackson. She is the uh, Delta City Councillor, now former mayor of Delta. Had to put that little plug in there. It is uh, Ladner May Days tomorrow. Big parade happening in Ladner. Big celebration in that community. Well, do you remember, if you think back, uh, the first time you saw kindness or how you learned about kindness? Or do you think about where you were influenced uh, by uh, people being kind? Was it in school? Do you remember moments in elementary school or perhaps high school when people weren't all that kind? Well, some research looking at this has found some very uh, interesting trends and interesting uh, roots, you could say, of where kindness comes from. And in particular, kindness in schools and kindness when we're talking about children. And John Tyler Binfed is is an associate uh, professor in the Faculty of Education at UBC and is here to talk more about that. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me. Good morning. Uh, can you start by telling us a little bit about how you even started uh, taking a look at kindness, kindness in schools, and and where children kind of perceive and pick up on that? Well, I'm a former classroom teacher, and I think uh, over the years I've just seen too much emphasis sort of on the negative aspects of, of uh, child development and adolescent development, the things that kids were doing wrong, and a focus on bullying and anti-bullying. And I just really embrace this movement of positive psychology where you look at the strengths and attributes of kids that you want to sort of harness and develop. And so I really just focus my research on looking at the positive aspects of uh, what kids do well, and that is kindness. And so uh, we've, I've really sort of devoted the last uh, 10 years to kind of uncovering, well, how are kids kind? And what did you find? Well, you know, kind of some surprising stuff, and this is a recent publication in the Journal of Childhood Studies. And one of the surprising things is that kids are actually kind in quiet ways that uh, parents and educators don't know about. 
so when I asked adolescents, for example, 700 adolescents, how they demonstrate kindness in school, there's a subpopulation that do kind of what we call sophisticated kindness, uh, quiet kindness that nobody knows about. They'll leave money in the vending machine for the uh, person who comes up next, right? So they get no accolades or praise for that really kind of quiet stuff or the one that kind of, you know, um, tugs at the heartstrings is, you know, a sixth grader who says, when asked, what do you do to be kind? And he said, uh, um, I'm more careful about mentioning things about my mom in front of Cole because his died of cancer last year. Very, very quiet kindness that nobody knows about. And I guess that kind of goes to the whole idea of selfless acts. And if there are any, because once you start talking about it, it takes away, it seems that does it kind of ask the question, well, are you doing it to get recognition for being kind? Whereas if you don't talk about it, then you're kind of you're being that quiet, kind person. Right. The worst sort of thing that can happen and has happened is that when I give a workshop or I give a talk or something, and then I hear from the school that they had like a kindness contest or something to see who could do the most. And that sort of just thwarts the, you know, the foundation of kindness in my view. So we really want this to just be a part of ingrained behavior in a school so that we can change the climate and support one another and have positive relationships with peers and adults. And did your research look at where children first learn this? Because I would like to believe that people aren't born unkind, but where do children learn the most or or influence the most about being kind? Well, there's some research. Um, Felix Warnikin looks at like 18-month-old toddlers and sees uh, looks at their pro-social behavior and their tendency to to be inclined to help everybody uh, around them. But really, I think your your point, Jill, is this idea that. Could schools contribute to kids being maybe less kind over time? And there's a little trend that that we see that kids start out super kind, and then the longer they're sort of in school, that they maybe are become less kind, or the measures that we have currently indicate that they're maybe demonstrating less kindness over time. So we really want to take this seriously and make sure we create conditions where kids can showcase kindness. Um, and that is just part of what's expected as uh, being a student in the school. Uh, your research and the article on this also looks at teachers and how they perceive or what, what they perceive as kindness in teachers, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, this was a really, uh, yeah, I, I was struck by this. So I, you know, as the old guy, I kind of thought, oh, you know, if you ask kids, hey, how does your teacher show kindness? They'll say things like, oh, well, at the end of the day, we're well-behaved. They gave, she gave us a treat or something, or we've got extra minutes at, you know, at recess or something like this. But lo and behold, about 76% of these kids, and they were in uh, kindergarten to third grade, identified the teacher teaching as an act of kindness. They could have put anything, but they really just put the teacher teaching, and it was either teaching themselves or teaching a peer. And that was perceived to be overwhelmingly how teachers demonstrate kindness. Uh, was it though? Was it the, the teacher standing at the front of the class uh, teaching everybody, or was it they were they were perceiving it if the teacher say was doing one on one time with someone? It, it, it was both, but predominantly it was one on one time for kids who were struggling. And so, you know, educators who are listening to the show this morning really should be bolstered by, you know, it's not fancy field trips and guest speakers and all this extra stuff that really impresses kids. Kids perceive teachers being kind just by being teachers, by instructing and providing support through instruction in the classroom. Which is interesting. I mean, were you expecting that the answers would be different, that they would be more about the field trips and about the things that maybe are a bit flashier? Yeah, I really did, and that's a good way to put it. I really thought it would be kind of like the the grandstanding or showboating stuff that the kids would hang on to, and it isn't. It's the day-to-day interactions where teachers support kids who are intellectually struggling to master uh, master concepts. 
So, and, and really, that's just like, heartwarming to, to see that, that the kids are, that's what's important to them. They can put anything, but they describe their teacher as kind when the teacher is teaching, supporting learning. Hmm. Did you find a difference between girls and boys? We see that in the in the literature, and we've seen that a little bit in the research um, that 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 I've done, where we see girls tend to be, and it, it sounds a little bit stereotypical, but more emotionally kind, and boys tend to be a little bit more physically kind. So a boy might uh, hit, pick up books that have dropped in the hallway or something like that, and demonstrate you know kindness that way. Whereas girls might you know put an arm around somebody and say, "Are you okay? And can I help you?" And you know that kind of thing. But we do see lots of sort of fluidity across that. It's not uniquely that, but there's a sort of a slight trend along those lines. And does it change then as uh, when you talk about that that group that you talk to, a kindergarten to three, does it change when, when you get to the older grades? There, well, there's continuity throughout. So I'm in my last kind of pitching, my last study of high school student 10. I've gone all the way from kindergarten all the way up now. And so I'm looking now at 10th through uh, 12th graders. But the common themes are really sharing, cooperating, and um, and helping through um, supporting emotionally or uh, physically others. So these theme, these themes are found across the, the grades, just in different sort of iterations or manifestations. And so can we take this research, or do we do we get from this research, like you said, we tend to focus on the negative when we talk about bullying, well, even if it's talking about an anti-bullying campaign, but the reason we're talking about that is because it's become an issue or because it's a problem. So how do we get to the point where, where kids are being kind and, and are learning about kindness to the point where we have to, to be bringing in measures to stop bullying? Yeah, I think it's, uh, just as you said, we don't do it reactively. We wait till it sort of gets to a point where you have to take action. We do it as an integrated model. Tons of modeling by the adults, including the parents within the school community, and then tons of showcasing opportunities for kids to be kind. And I think, honestly, there, there's a subpopulation of kids who are, really need some support and how to do that. And so I've written about this sort of intentional kindness where you structure kindness for kids and you actually start with asking them, hey, little friend, who around you needs kindness? And they just start a bank of all the people or, or places around them that need kindness, and then we figure out systematically, well, what could we do? And is it going to be time and energy? Is it going to be an object that will facilitate kindness? How will we do that? So it's the teaching of kindness in many ways and then showcasing opportunities for kids to be kind as just part of the regular school experience. It's not a special event. It's not once a year. It's not pink shirt day. It's just always. And how much of, a, of an influence is it, or how difficult then is it, say, it's fine if you're in the classroom or you're in school and there's this focus on kindness and being kind to one another and you're surrounded by that, but then if, if outside of school, which is, is some, uh, just a fraction of the day, uh, you're perhaps maybe in a bad home environment, you're in a, an environment with fighting and, and with people who aren't kind, uh, how, how much of an influence is that on kids then when they come back to school? Well, I think the external really makes it difficult for some kids. But, uh, you know, my, the article I'm working on right now is, you know, kinder than we think, understanding adolescent kind acts. And adolescents in particular are really, really kind. They're, they're kind in, I think, in a, uh, will surprise some of the stereotypes we have about adolescents being kind of selfish and mired in conflict and all that kind of stuff because they do a lot of really, really great stuff. Um, so I think it's this idea of um, kindness builds resiliency. So when you talk about kind of a rough home life and that sort of thing, if kids are getting instructed in kindness, it bolsters men- mental health and it bolsters resiliency so that when kids encounter hiccups in life, they can kind of forge through and be socially and emotionally strong in that. Uh, so there's that resiliency component that I think I'd like to argue would, uh, would help kids find their way even in tough, tough situations.
Which I, I think you make a good point. And we see examples of that all the time of people that have come from not ideal uh, backgrounds or situations who have done absolutely amazing things. Yeah, and, and that really, I think they, they can harken back to some experience where they've had it modeled or some sort of, um, you know, gentle act of kindness that has really been a pivotal sort of memory for them. And so we all play a role in that, all of us do, whether it's uh, you know, in the line at Starbucks or it's, uh, you know, uh, checking in on people around us or within our work communities, that sort of thing, that there's ample opportunity to take a breath and just uh, perspective take and enact kindness to a greater extent. Uh, do you think there needs to be more focus on, uh, to, to circle back to, the, to what you mentioned off the top, this idea of quiet kindness? Because it almost seems like we, we put a lot of, uh, of, of focus on, on grand acts or, like you said, like a pink shirt day, these, these big gestures. Whereas, and to use the example you used, you know, just being aware that talking about a parent to somebody who's lost a parent might make it difficult. Uh, do we need to maybe focus more on just how, how um, powerful something like that can be? Well, you know, I write about this idea that random kindness when you respond to a need that you stumble upon and see, and that's intentional where you can plan and then deliver kindness. And then this quiet kindness, I argue, is really kind of a sophisticated, socially and emotionally sophisticated sort of elevated act of kindness where you're not seeking praise and you're not trying to showcase. So I would argue, you know, as a psychologist, it's uh, it's a developmental in nature that you could start with random and have them respond. You could do intentional, and then we could, you know, help or encourage kids to be quiet. And so if I were back in the classroom, I'd structure activities where we practice each of those different streams of kindness as a way. But, you know, listeners, I'd say, I'd ask them, hey, when, when, when was the last time you were randomly kind? Or when were you intentionally kind? Were you planned kindness? And then, you know, the, the real key is when were you quietly kind? That only you knew about it. And that was important for you. And, you know, the thing, you know, Jill, that we're not talking about is there's so many benefits to being kind. Those listeners who are kind of feeling a little bit low, the thing we do with kids is we get them being kind because it really boosts them and it lifts them out of that sort of dark space. So it's a, it has a mental health benefit to kind. All right. Well, it's a very interesting research. I look forward to, to, to seeing more of it as you do more of it. We'll have to leave it there. But thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. You're very welcome. Goodbye. All right, that is John Tyler Binfett, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of British Columbia. And if you want to read more about this, uh, he has a, a column uh, in the Taiyi. You can catch it online if uh, you would like to read that. Well, if you've often thought that your cell phone bill is expensive and perhaps more expensive than uh, people in other countries, you would not be incorrect. But how much more are Canadians paying for cell service? Well, my next guest is here to talk a bit more about that. Stephen Clark is a media spokesperson with whistleout.ca and joins us on the line. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on the show, Jill. Uh, Before we get into the numbers and why we're paying so much more, what exactly is uh, whistleout.ca? Well, Whistle Out collects cell phone plan pricing from across Canada, uh, sorts it into uh, different prices, different price uh, categories and regions. Uh, we present the facts to consumers so that they can choose a phone in the plan that's that's right for you. And how much more are Canadians paying then, say, uh, with for with other people who are getting similar plans? Uh, we compared against the United States, and we found that. Uh, the vast majority of Canadians are still using under two gigabytes per month. Uh, so what was most interesting was plans two gigabytes and under uh, were around 25% more than uh, comparable plans in the United States, once we've taken into account uh, the, the price conversion. And is it competition, or why is it that we're paying so much more? There's a lot of possible reasons. Uh, 
competition is certainly the most obvious. Uh, there's two, there's three major networks in Canada that carry most of the cell phone uh, signal. Uh, in the United States, there's four, so there's not a whole lot more competition there. But what we see is the is uh, the differences in the behavior. Uh, in the state in the states, they often uh, they try to undercut one another. In Canada, we don't see that nearly as much. When the prices for Bell, Rogers, or Telus, uh, when one goes up, the the other two usually follow. And same thing when they have a promotion, then the other two usually follow. So they, they don't, there's not quite as much effort to undercut one another. Uh, and do you think it would make a big difference then if we even added one more carrier like in the States? It's, the evidence is certainly there. In provinces where there's a strong fourth carrier, uh, that's Saskatchewan, Manitoba and uh, Quebec, top prices uh, are much, much lower on average, we found. Uh, in fact, um, even even in places like Saskatchewan, where they have Sastel, uh, Saskatchewan doesn't even have the cheapest rates. The three major networks lower their prices to uh, compete in that one province. But then once you leave Saskatchewan, then prices go back up uh, nationwide. Hmm. Uh, do we are, are Canadians, do you think uh, also, are they willing to pay the price or do we are we under the idea that we pay this price, but in doing so, we get a better service? We do. We certainly get better service. Uh, in in uh, on the worldwide scale, our mobile networks are the second fastest behind only Nor- Norway. Uh, that said, uh, nobody likes to pay more. Uh, one, one of, that's why sites like Whistleout are uh, so much help is because you can go to the website, punch in how many minutes or data you you plan to use every month. You can even find out what uh, phone you want uh, to buy on a t- on a plan, uh, and we can help you find what the cheapest rate is. Uh, your, the data or the information on your website as well also talks about the overage charges. And I think anybody hearing that will know exactly what that is and mm-hmm. likely has paid one uh, from time to time, if not more, more frequently than that. What about overage charges and how do, how does Canadian, how do Canadian plans compare with, with others? In Canada, the CRTC actually put forward a wireless code of conduct that they recommend all carriers uh, adhere to. And after many horror stories about people going over over in their data caps and then being charged one, two, three thousand dollars. Um, there's a rule that they can't charge more than fifty dollars before getting permission uh, from the care from the account holder to charge more for for data. So you can still get data overages on many plans in Canada. Uh, however, uh, they can't charge more than fifty dollars. There's there are three carriers that ha- that offer unlimited data. Once you hit your data cap, then your speeds are slowed, but you're not charged any data data overages. That's typically how things are handled in the states amongst all carriers. You can go over your data cap, however, uh, once you do, then your your speed can be slowed at any time. But is it is it a different uh, speed in that in Canada when your speed is slowed down, it, it kind of grinds almost to a halt? Is that different than what we see in the states? In the states, your speed stays full speed. Um, until there's a lot of traffic. So you might be able to still get full, the stream full high speed, uh, high definition video uh, in the middle of the day. However, during rush hour, when there's a lot of people using mobile data, then your speeds are probably going to be slowed down. You'll have to take uh, either lower quality video or just no video at all. Hmm. And so where do we see this going as far as uh, Canadians know that we, we pay more for the, for the service we get? Um, the companies charge what they charge. People are willing to pay it. Uh, does it look like it's going to change at all anytime soon? 
unless there's a strong force carrier on a nationwide scale, I don't think that we're going to see a whole lot of change uh, soon. What you can do is uh, take a look at other carriers, because even Bell, Rogers, and TELUS, uh, the big three na- national networks, uh, have sub-brands that they use. Uh, so uh, Fido, Kudo, and Virgin Mobile are offer cheaper plans. However, they're entirely owned by those three big networks. There's also prepaid brands like uh, Public Mobile and Chatter, who uh, are also owned by those companies. And they all offer some sort of um, uh, plan that is much cheaper for more data, more data when compared to Bell, Rogers, and TELUS. And, so, and why is that, that you're able to get a cheaper plan through one of the other, the other carriers, even though they're owned by the big three? They're, they're owned by the same company. So why is there such a difference mm-hmm. in the prices? That's a fair question. Uh, companies like Public Mobile and Chatter uh, offer slower speeds, so you can't stream high-quality video. However, you're given, you, it's a prepaid account, so you pay up front each month, uh, and then you can um, get lots, lots of data for a low price. Those are usually the best ones for talk and text plans or people who don't necessarily stream video a whole lot. Uh, company, uh, brands like uh, Kudo, Fido, and Virgin Mobile were created largely to keep from segmenting their market. So they can target uh, a younger market or more spendthrift uh, customers help without diluting their larger brand. And you mentioned the three provinces that, that have the lower fees, uh, Quebec, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan, with the, the fourth mm-hmm. carrier. Uh, do you see other provinces going that route, or, or is there a demand, do you think? Would, would people in those provinces like to see that? Yeah, I, th- I think anybody would like, like to see that. Uh, the, the other fourth carrier to mention is uh, uh, Freedom Mobile, which is present in B.C., uh, however, they're they're hyper local. They're simply um, located only in uh, in uh, Vancouver and Victoria. They're expanding to other cities in BC as well as Alberta and and uh, Ontario. But we don't see the same kind of competitive pricing from the, the major networks that we see uh, in those other three provinces. So uh, the the takeaway from this is uh, people could go to your website and see uh, what's available and what we're paying, but uh, prepare or uh, be ready to continue paying more. More than, our, more than other countries, yes, but we do get better service. I can assure you that. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about uh, some of the research and uh, what people are paying. Uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Have a great day. You too. That is Stephen Clark. He's a media spokesperson with whistleout.ca, and that's the website if you want to check it out to to see what other provinces, what people in uh, other parts of Canada are paying. Uh, And if you want to look at the different plans as well, you can uh, read it all on that website. Well, we talked earlier about cell phone coverage right across the country, how it varies from province to province. But the one common thread was we pay more for it here in Canada than we do uh, with our counterparts in the United States and other countries as well. That's just one industry where we pay more uh, because of policy. Uh, My next guest has written about uh, measuring protected industries in Canada, and uh, it's called Walled from Competition. And Vincent Geloso joins me on the line. He is a visiting professor with Bates College. Uh, Vincent, thank you so much for being with us this morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Talk a little bit about this. Uh, You have uh, written about this, uh, as I said, it's called Walled from Competition, Measuring Protected Industries in Canada. Uh, What are the protected industries that you are writing about and talking about? So uh, we're talking about industries that are uh, either protected from competition by laws that limit foreign foreign, 
uh, foreign uh, companies from entering the Canadian market. That would be the case, for example, with cell phones, where uh, non-Canadian firms uh, cannot enter the market unless they have a certain percentage of Canadian shareholders. Uh, other examples would be state-run monopolies, which are, by definition, monopolies that they restrict competition by law. This would include, for example, alcohol retail and uh, uh, other little industries such as uh, busing services where provincial governments or federal governments in some instances provide monopolies directly to private companies, uh, thereby limiting competition to, to them. And airlines, I think, would come to mind for many people because uh, we all know how expensive it is, whether you're flying within Canada or outside of Canada. Is that another one that's uh, that's included in this? Yes. Airlines are actually a big deal in this, uh, largely because in addition to uh, restrictions on foreign ownership of firms, it is also uh, illegal for, for example, Air France to pick people in Toronto, drop a few in Montreal, then head to Paris. Uh, it is illegal for any carrier, in fact, to provide services between Canadian cities if it's a non-Canadian carrier, which means that competition is limited, protecting uh, incumbent firms such as uh, as Air Canada from competition on uh, on some smaller lines. And what's the cost then? And this was a study that was put out by the Fraser Institute that takes a look at this, saying that more than thirty percent of the Canadian economy is is in this is in this zone that's protected from foreign competition. Do you study then, or did you look at them? What is the cost for Canadians? So here's the thing: we in this study, what we were doing was identifying sectors that were protected and checking as a percentage of the economy how much do they represent. And the low bound estimate is that a quarter of the economy. Uh, is protected from competition to a, to large degrees. If you widen a little bit the definition, you can go as high as 35%. So close to a third of the economy is uh, restricted from competition. This is a big deal. Now, we didn't study how much prices could fall or how much quality could increase, but we have case-by-case examples elsewhere around the world following uh, removals of certain, certain restrictions on competition, such as airline in Europe, uh, airlines in the United States, which following uh, the removal of entry barriers so that there's a threat to incumbent firms, uh, which by virtue of that threat are forced to try and improve constantly in their services because they're worried of losing market shares. Uh, we find rapidly falling prices. We find rapidly increasing uh, quality, but also a greater range of services so that uh, certain people get a type of service that they actually are interested in. Uh, so we've seen, like, from a lot of cases that uh, the removal of such barriers in a case-by-case approach tends to yield very good results for consumers. But in our paper, we were largely interested in saying what share of the economy is protected from competition, thus immunized from the pressures to constantly try to improve uh, the services rendered to consumers. Right, because if they are, if, if services are protected, I mean, it, it effectively takes away the choice of consumers. So you're going to be paying for something, uh, whether you think it's a good service or a good product, you're paying for it anyway, because there's no other choice. Yes. So there's an old saying in economics, which is uh, the, the, the greatest profit of a monopolist is a quiet life, uh, whereby if, the, if consumers have very few options, well, what's the incentive? What's the pressure? to try and improve the services. There are none, uh, largely because consumers have no options. However, if there is a threat of competition, firms have to be on the lookout, not only from 
potential entrants into the market, so people who will contest them, but also from people who may just invent entirely new products that will make their own products obsolete. So think about, for example, phones, which for most of the 20th centuries were given by virtue of state action monopolies, uh, which were regulate, which were we were regulating away competition. But if you like in the last, if you check in the last 10, 20 years, where did competition to uh, to establish uh, landlines came from? New technologies such as Skype, such as cell phones, so people who were trying to circumvent uh, existing firms uh, that were providing services. The fact that innovation can also basically destroy uh, firms that are not on their tiptoes in terms of improving quality and improving consumer welfare provides an incredible discipline. Laws that limit this discipline are going to hurt consumers down the line. And do you think there's a difference in how people look at this, whether we're talking about a cell phone plan where people can be a bit bitter thinking, well, I need a cell phone and I know I'm paying more, uh, some estimates, at least 25% more than other countries because there's not as much competition in Canada. Is there a difference, do you think, in that scenario compared to something like supply management, where we hear from farmers uh, who are quite happy to have the protection from government? I think I think a lot of companies are really happy to have protection. Uh, it's really important for, uh, for example, we're mentioning uh, airlines. Airlines are very satisfied with the fact that uh, there is no one that can enter the market easily to compete with them. It simplifies their lives. And not only that, but if you check the few segments of roads in Canada where there is some entry, we actually find that prices are, far, are, are falling just by virtue of allowing more competition. Allowing, for example, uh, uh, the entry of uh, foreign carriers between Canadian cities uh, could help lower prices, uh, which would, by virtue of that, uh, threaten uh, the established the uh, the established firms uh, from uh, the, from potential competitors. Uh, companies really like to have to have a quiet life that I just mentioned earlier, and they will fight for it. If you check, there's been a lot of pushback against pushes for uh, open sky agreements or for removing uh, restrictions on foreign ownership of companies in uh, that provide telecommunication services. Uh, all of these re- all of these examples stem from the fact that firms really like not having competition. We're starting to see uh, the low cost carriers when we're looking at airlines uh, in BC and in Canada. We're starting to see uh, some more of those coming onto the market. I mean, it is difficult for them. We've also seen many, many of the, many of them try to start up and fail uh, because uh, of the protections of something like Air Canada. Uh, but do you think are we seeing a shift? Are we are we moving in the right direction? I think I think we are, but there's there's one thing that we have to remember. Uh, let's look at Europe or the United States, which are very large markets. Uh, Canada is not a really large market. We're a large country with a very relatively small population. Uh, that means that there isn't that much room for economies of scales uh, for companies in Canada as a result uh, for airline companies. In Europe, that's not the case. In Europe, there's massive, a massive market, and entry is free. And what have we seen in Europe? The low-cost carriers you just mentioned, which are constantly reducing prices. Now, imagine if Canada decided to let European and American airline providers provide services between Canadian cities. We'd get access to the same benefits as they do, 
but we'd also have access as a result to lower prices, to greater competition, and the entry of low-cost carriers who specialize in connecting smaller cities to the big hubs and then bring ca- uh, passengers to uh, more popular uh, destinations uh, that are more uh, that there's more uh, traveling on uh, on these lines. Uh, but this is not this cannot be done because of the laws that exist here in Canada. So the low-cost carriers are pretty much prevented in terms of existence uh, by the virtue of the, the way the laws are constructed. Would there be a downside to allowing that? I don't, I don't see it. <laughs> Consumer, uh, consumers uh, benefiting from lower prices, I don't see much of a downside to something like that, uh, especially if it comes by firms who are constantly threatened by competition, who uh, have to be on the lookout to try and find ways to innovate, to improve the quality of their product, to try and find ways to bring in new consumers into the market. Uh, I don't see any problem with that. I see very few downsides as a result. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. It's an interesting uh, study for sure. Vincent, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate uh, you spending some time with us this morning. It was a pleasure. All right. Have a great rest of your weekend. Cheers. That is Vincent Geloso, a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute, also a visiting uh, professor from Bates College. Uh, Curious your thoughts on this. Would you like to see more competition in this country when it comes to telecommunications, when it comes to airlines, when it comes to, well, anything? where there is uh, not a lot of competition. This study uh, put out by the Fraser Institute finds that uh, governments in Canada restrict or prevent foreign competition in about 30% of Canada's economy, and that includes, uh, like we were talking about, air transportation and telecommunications. Almost one of every $3 of the total value of all the goods and services produced in Canada shielded from competition, and that's uh, in that report just released. What do you think about that? What would you like to see change if anything, give me a call on the buzz line. We won't have time to get to your calls today, but we will have plenty of time on the program tomorrow. If you want to give us a call at 604-331-BUZZ, that is 604-331-2899. You can also email me, jbennett at cknw.com. That's jbennett at cknw.com. I had someone email in asking about the website, about the cell phone companies. That was, uh, let me look it up, whistleout.ca. Whistleout, all one word, .ca. That's when we were talking with Stephen Clark earlier on the program. And they have all the information there on the various different carriers, what Canadians pay, what we pay compared to our counterparts in the United States and other countries. And don't be surprised, yes, we pay more for our cell phone in this uh, country.